0: I want to try a slightly different format this week. I'm going to be doing a bit of an AMA as well as a really great interview. But it's all going to start around one topic that is probably the question that I get asked the most. And that's uh, how I edit my Instagram stories. And I don't think I get asked that because I have the best Instagram stories in the world. Um, I am basically doing simple filmmaking techniques and editing them quickly and putting them up online. And I I think they only look exceptional because we're used to just using the default stuff within Instagram. But if you just apply some basic vlogging and and like I say, storytelling, filmmaking skills, it can go a really long way. So first, I'm just going to quickly explain how I do that. And then we're going to jump into an interview with somebody that does it at a way more intense scale than I do. Um, so the main thing, uh, and this all ties into a YouTube video that I just created. So like these, these are part and parcel. So make sure you check that out if you haven't yet, but is that I'm using spark camera to do my filming and editing. And this is when I really just want to get through things quickly. And and to me, that's part of what stories are like. They are meant to be quick. I want to post things while they are still happening. Uh, if I have a stockpile of footage at the end of the day, there's a pretty good chance it won't get posted. I actually noticed on the day that is in the YouTube video, we were in Florence, and there was one day where I'd filmed the most stuff, like I, I had the biggest, longest story, and I didn't realize till I got home that I didn't post that day. I just forgot about the story because I had so much footage that I kept delaying editing it and I never got around to finishing it. So if I can shoot and edit on the fly as I go, it's so much easier to actually get it up on a daily basis or you know, some semi-daily basis as often as possible. But you also don't need to use Spark specifically. That's just what I like to do it really quickly. You can also use more traditional editors like iMovie will get the job done as well. It's pretty good. Uh, I like, whoops, forgot the name, uh, Video Leap is the other one that I use pretty often. Like if I've said anything slightly more involved, I'll often get into Video Leap do it in there because I'm able to do multiple tracks. So for example, in Spark Camera, you can add a layer of music underneath all of the video tracks and just keeps playing through the whole video. But that has some big limitations. Like for one, it will end at the end of the song. And then you just have to let the rest of the video play out without music. There's pretty limited controls over the volume. So I'm often adjusting the volume to be quieter when I'm speaking and louder when there's no other audio to hear. But it's kind of flaky, like it doesn't seem to reliably go up and down when I told it to or when I predict that it should. Um so th- there's a few little details about Spark that because of the speed of use mean that you can't get quite as precise. In VideoLeap, you can do a really quick edit, but you can also still layer audio so you could have uh, like your dialogue and music on different layers and have them come in and out change songs part way through um, have the song not start at the beginning just little details that are in most non-linear editors um, but you know, aren't present in spark camera so like i say i use Spark camera most of the time i find video leap to be the, ne- the next most useful one and then there's the, you know what actually sorry i said iMovie a second ago but I, I just remember the reason I never go back to iMovie is I think it doesn't properly support vertical video. Like it's really terrible at it. And VideoLeap does a great job with vertical. Um, there's another one. I'm going to open my phone because I forget the name. LumaFusion. Uh, it's kind of the most professional one that I've seen. To me, it feels a little bit like Final Cut 7. Like the interface is not great. It's a little, it's so complicated that it feels like it was a little bit uh, created by a programmer. But if you're familiar with video editing, you you absolutely can get the hang of it. Like it's a solid program and it is really deep. Like if you wanted to edit a feature film on your phone, this is the program that you do it in. I get asked a lot about uh, which app to use on Android and I just don't end up editing my stories on Android much. Like, I haven't found one that I really use. So I reached out to you guys in my stories the other day, and I got a lot of responses on what you guys are using. Uh, I heard GoPro's Quick app, which I've I've tried. It seems pretty good. Uh, Adobe Premiere Clip, also decent. Seemed fine when I briefly used it. A few people said Google Photos. I'm not totally sure what they mean by that. It is some automated editing, but... Can you do it manually in there? I've never tried that. And another one that came up pretty often is Power Director. It costs a few bucks. I haven't tried it. I don't know. But anyway, I think the key thing about making interesting stories is not at all the app that you use or editing techniques or even filming techniques. Like Most of all, it's storytelling. It's about giving people a reason to come back to it. And I, I'm even surprised that a lot of the big YouTubers aren't doing this because they know how to make... A great video, right? And I saw a few of them do it on IGTV, but then when they post Instagram stories, they still treat it as quick and disposable. I think you just have to remember that people watching are giving you their time. They're trusting you to minorly entertain them for a very few seconds. Like just when you make a story, don't think about it all being about you. Think about it as an effort to communicate, an effort to actually get something out there to other people add captions that make sense, uh, be willing to talk on camera, the images that you show, just show them in a sequence that sets up a story that tells people what's going on. So there's kind of a small beginning, middle and end. And here's a little trick for anybody that has an iPhone 10. I, I haven't seen anybody else talk about this, but this is something I like, is you can hide hashtags uh, by dragging them off screen. Actually, maybe this is on other phones too. I just It seems like it's something about the height of the iPhone 10 that does it. But if you want to kind of just add hashtags to your story, but you don't want them to clutter up the screen, you can type them in and drag them off screen to the bottom and they'll still be present and they'll show up in hashtag hashtag searches but they don't have to make a mess. Um, so obviously, I don't think you should do that with people, like if you're tagging people. The point is to send your viewers to see those other people's screens, like, please don't use this for bad purposes. Um, you know, it definitely could be like that, but it can also be a way of just keywording and separating the metadata from the design. And in that I, d- I don't think there's anything wrong with. Another trick to know, it's not really a trick, but just a good thing to know is that I've found that hashtags bring in Almost no outside viewers, like, you know, three or four, Uh, sometimes more. Sometimes I've had um, maybe 100 people show up from a hashtag, but that's really a huge exception. That only happened once. Typically, the bigger thing that brings people in is geotagging. That actually is, is where people, I think, are watching more stories is in the places section of the app. So, you know, they go to their own city or they go to their neighborhood and they're looking for what's going on there. And if you're part of that story, I find that is a good way of getting your message out. Uh, hashtags don't so much matter. And tagging other people, that's just part of being in the Instagram community. If you want to know more, go to the YouTube video. The link is in the description. And now we're going to go to the interview, and then stick around after for an Ask Me Anything. My first Ask Me Anything, actually. I have one of my most requested guests on this week, Jesse Driftwood. Hey, Jesse, what's up? For like a quick intro to you, what does you do? I mean, I know you because you make amazing Instagram stories that people love. I love, you know, it feels like a full video vlog. What else do you do? How did you get into that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been a full-time photographer, filmmaker for nearing a decade. I don't know, eight, eight, nine years, something like that. For a long time, I was primarily doing weddings and corporate events, that kind of stuff, like more documentary stuff. But I was also obsessed with um, stylizing it. So it was somewhere between, I mean, all the work I did was somewhere between Heavily stylized, you know, cinematic, beautiful stuff, but also it was documentary. So there was kind of elements that were raw and yada, yada, yada. So I've never been um, a filmmaker in the sense that I, uh, you know, I'm not making narrative pieces really. I've never done that. Maybe I will someday. But uh, yeah, I've been doing event filmmaking, documentary filmmaking for a long time. And a couple years ago, I went on a trip to Singapore with my family and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to bring a little point and shoot. I'm going to film some just clips. I'm going to make just really fast edits, nothing fancy, just literally the goal was to make home movies, something to look back on remember this trip. And uh, I did it. It was great. The videos were fine, not great. And two, maybe three months later, I ended up going back to Singapore with my family, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do it again. And at this point, I had actually, in between these trips, I'd kind of stumbled upon Casey Neistat. And I was like, oh, I can actually make these (laughs) better, right? Mm-hmm. I, the, it doesn't just have to be like quick cut clips, funny things, a little bit of music. So I kind of started pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope, my own <laughs> envelope. It was not no one else's envelope. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of do what I did last time, which was still very much home movies, edited home movies. So for me, home movies, uh, just a little bit better. And then, uh, yeah, I got home from that second trip to Singapore and I was like, that was so fun. I want to keep doing this, but I'm still in the world of wedding filmmaking, commercial or corporate slash some some commercial filmmaking. So I don't really have time to make the content that I want to make, which is, you know, maybe these vlogs or YouTube, that kind of stuff, longer format stuff. And so I kind of hit a wall. I was like, well, I don't know. I won't do anything. (laughs) That's the solution. And then late, mid late 2016, Instagram story or Instagram dropped stories. And I had never jumped on Snapchat or anything like that. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And so one of the, one of the first stories that I made, I actually just took my RX100 or whatever and I filmed myself taking a bite of a donut vertically in slow motion because I thought it was funny. Mm-hmm. And I remember I got so many DMs just from friends. Like, how did you film? Like, how did you make this? Is this, at the time, they're like, is this the seven plus with portrait <laughs> mode? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was like, no, here's what I did. I took yeah, yeah. my point and shoot. I recorded slow motion vertically. I imported it to my computer. I edited it, speed ramped it, exported it, sent it back to my phone, and uploaded it. And everyone was like, you're an idiot. Just mm-hmm. don't do that. And I remember even thinking how much response it got from people being like, are you serious? That was way too much work. In my head, I was like, that's really funny. And so <laughs> I, I kind of thought, like maybe I could do this more often. Just make stupid, silly Instagram stories that take way too long to make for... Their actual perceived value. Because in retrospect, holy cow, has it been a great idea? You know, I've built an entirely new business, an entirely new career off the back of making these Instagram stories. But at the time, it was like, Jesse, this is a bad idea. This is just (laughs) this is just disappearing. And if anyone shows up on your page, they're gone because you know, highlights didn't exist. And because of my personality, I have a very addictive personality and obsessive personality, so I don't like doing things unless I can be at least above average. So I have to right. be <laughs> I have to be as good as I think I can possibly be. And if that's not better than most people, I won't do it. And so every Instagram story, I was like, how can I make this a little more ridiculous? How can I make the amount of work I put in just a little bit more obscene? And uh, yeah, I've been doing that for the past 18 plus months. And here we are.
0: And well, I should also make sure that anybody listening has already checked out your Instagram because it's, you know, it's, it's why... It's worth uh, hearing your opinion on this because, like, there's not that many people doing this amazing mm-hmm.
1: kind of work on it. Were yeah. you doing
0: any Snapchat before that or did you jump no, straight into it? No. Yeah.
1: no, I think I technically have a Snapchat profile. I think it's Jetski69 because I thought that was funny. <laughs> but I, I've never used it. I've never snapped. I've never yeah. watched a snap.
0: Well, I remember, because I was traveling when Insta Stories came out, and I was on Snapchat yeah. at the time. Like, I was active on Snapchat. Mm-hmm. And I saw that you were able to upload pre-recorded content. Yes. And, and right away, I was like, oh, this is going to make this a different thing. And I, yeah, think, yeah, yeah. I, I think it really helped in letting Instagram do the leapfrog that it has.
1: Snapchat and the uploading thing, that's that's probably how I got into it, is that the day one that Stories came out, my friend Zach, who was you know kind of using Snapchat, he posted a story on Instagram that I think it just had like a dog filter or something, you know, not, not a special Snapchat. And I was mm-hmm. like, whoa, I didn't know you could do this on Instagram. I want to be a puppy dog too. And uh, he was like, no, this is from my Snapchat. But if you swipe up on stories, you can upload. And so that was that was when I realized it was day one. I was like, oh, interesting. I had the same thought is that this doesn't just have to be recorded. You could upload your snaps, your puppy dogs or whatever.
0: Well, yeah. So now why is it that you still see Instagram as the place for this kind of content for live, to live for you? Cause like you probably could mm. be transitioning to more YouTube
1: gradually, mm-hmm.
0: but it seems like, you know, you've been kind of slow to create
1: YouTube content. You know, why not? Um, that's a great question. <laughs> um, I, you're right. Not only could I be slowly transitioning to YouTube, I should be transitioning to YouTube. Um, <laughs> And there's a few reasons there. The reason that I think that I should be transitioning to YouTube is actually I've done so many of these videos which are very, they're very um, compact, right? Mm-hmm. You you don't have a lot of chance to talk, for example, because you put out a sentence and boom, that's 15 seconds. Your your time is up. And yeah, you can over, mm-hmm. you know, you can go further and further. But I don't like having speech go over that little audio cut when it goes from one story to the other. So I have to be very efficient in how I edit my stories and I just, I feel now like I'm getting to the point where it's like, maybe I want to talk a little bit more. Maybe right. I want to not be so concerned with how these 50 sure. second cuts are going to affect me.
0: I mean, the problem I find with, because I keep thinking that, like I, I edit my Instagram stories on my phone. So I shoot it all on my phone mm-hmm. and then I like pre-edit and upload. And I keep thinking, if I could apply that concept to YouTube, I would I would get mm. so much more done. I would have more YouTube videos. Right, you know, more, right. more, more would happen. But I always, there's also this barrier that happens where, because it's YouTube, I raise my expectations of myself. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. but I have to have something to say. It has to be sub- substantial and significant and better. And I don't know if that's true, but it creates a wall where I'm like, okay, I'll p- I put out stories almost every day because I can do it quickly. Right. But then I have this mental barrier
1: for for YouTube where, you know, I only get like two videos in a month. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. But One of the reasons that I started doing stories versus YouTube is... Who's that, uh, that money guru guy people always talk about? Which one? <laughs> Tony Gordon. Robbins. Seth- no, no, not Tony Robbins. One of the Ramseys. Seth Godin. Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> not Seth Godin. Is it Gordon Ramsey?
0: <laughs> no, he's the chef.
1: Okay, yeah, yeah. It's, it's another Ramsey. Anyways, I remember he had this um, thing that he was talking about. Is Let's say you have all this debt accumulated a lot of people, what they do is they'll say, all right, this is my biggest credit card or whatever. I need to pay this down because it has the greatest interest. It's overall having the largest negative impact on my life. And what he said was, no, don't do that. Start with your smallest credit card as an example. Let's say you have a credit card for $500 rather than $15,000. What you want to do is pay off the smallest one first so that you can feel like you're accomplishing something. So you can feel like you're building momentum and you can see, oh, I'm actually getting this done. I'm moving towards my goal of being debt free. Yeah. So I took that idea in terms of creativity, which is I was still working on these wedding edits and sometimes these larger edits, which I'm so obsessive about being as good as they can possibly be, it can be discouraging just jumping into it. I'm like, ah, where do I start? What do I do? And so I started making these short Instagram stories. And at the beginning, they were just 15 seconds filmed on my phone, edited on my phone, occasionally filmed on my phone, edited on my computer, because I could do them quickly. And I felt like, all right, now I'm I'm in it for the day. I'm editing. I'm in Final Cut. And and from there, I can move on to these bigger, more complicated tasks. So that's why I started with Instagram, is it felt digestible for, for me. It felt like something mm-hmm. I could actually accomplish. But given my personality of wanting everything to be as good as it can possibly be, I was getting to the point where I was spending like four or five hours on a single day's story at at some points. And then it's like, wow, well, this is no longer actually helping me get weddings finished or commercial stuff finished. It's actually inhibiting it. But I built a, an entirely yeah. new business around it. And so now I'm able to transition those. I really felt
0: it actually right now. I'm working on a, a client fashion show that I shoot and edit all the time. Right after mm-hmm. the show, I downloaded all the footage and did a quick instagram edit just to like show yeah. it off i was done that in, in an hour and it looked great you know it's like yeah, sixty yeah, seconds yeah, yeah. and it was really cool and now this next the, the full edit it's going to be two minutes but it's taking me weeks because it has to be perfect you yeah. have to spend all this time on it and
1: I, I think there's something interesting about that too is even though technically stories don't have to disappear now something about mm-hmm. knowing they're going to disappear i still will often feel like if it's not my best work it's okay and i'll do a 60 second edit same thing maybe four pieces of stories something I end up actually being quite proud of, and I'll do it way faster than I would if it was, I'll do it in less than half the time of, of what you're saying, of, of a two-minute edit for something else. Yeah. And I don't know why that is.
0: One thing I was thinking, what would I want to hear from you if I was listening to this? Is like, mm-hmm. what do you think people can learn from what you're doing that that they may not be? Because you know, I think people will watch someone else's content and may pick up on the wrong lessons. Like, okay, I'm watching Jesse Driftwood. And, <laughs> oh, that's a great point. Yeah. Like your stuff's blowing me away. So what I need is to get a bigger camera. Like I need a, a bigger sensor so that there's some blurry backgrounds. I need to be able to speed ramp. You know, I need to have moving transitions. Like though, I think a lot of people see your stuff and like, that's what I need to do. Yes. But what what is it you think they might be able to more practically pick up on
1: what you've learned from? Oh, so many things. So one of the questions I get most is like, how do you do your transitions? And here's what I'll say is if you're just starting out with filmmaking, transitions is probably not a good place to start (laughs) Yeah, because it, it doesn't tell a story. The reason I use it in Instagram stories is what I'm trying to do is tell a story as efficiently as possible. So if I'm trying to squeeze a 10 into 15 seconds, I'm like, we have to move along quickly here, here, here. But beneath my maybe a 15 30 45 second edit that might have a lot of transitions and stuff is my background in wedding filmmaking which is what order do you show clips in order to build emotional impact in order to keep people engaged keep their eyes watching so that they don't get bored yeah so what's less important that you may not realize if you know if you're just watching or you're just starting out is the transition between the clips and what's more important is what are the two clips that I'm transitioning from and to and why are they in that order? Yeah. Because it's yeah, not just totally. whip 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 put any clips mm-hmm. side by side and as long as the as long as the whip matches then you've got yourself an edit. Like that is not how I approach things at all.
0: Even if people were shooting just using the default stories, you know, hold the button down and let go and then do it again, you can still apply that lesson by uh, just m- matching shots, you know, where yeah, yeah. you are introducing you introduce an expectation and then you show the result of that expectation in the next shot. Yes. And it totally doesn't matter how the camera moves through that or if there is a final cut transition or anything. Like, if it's just a basic cutaway, that's good filmmaking. So, I mean, that's, like, what I think of when I watch your stuff. I think a lot of people think of, like, that you're doing tricks to make good stories. You're just making good videos. Yes. And stories are your medium.
1: Yes. That is absolutely it It is. I don't think it's that... Stories or vertical video is fundamentally good or bad. And I just think you can make good or bad videos <laughs> yeah. and, and put them different places. And depend, you would shoot it differently depending on the medium. But fundamentally, storytelling is storytelling. And there's a way to shoot things, a way to edit things, a way to narrate things or talk about things that can enhance the story or not.
0: Actually, that gets to a specific thing I've talked about a few times is like it took a while for me to learn that you actually shoot things differently vertically and horizontally. Mm -hmm. You know, like, it's not totally intuitive that, like, oh, yeah, you just put the subject in the middle and, you know, rule of thirds, Mm -hmm. whatever. What are some of those, like, compositional rules that you've learned over time by shooting more vertical?
1: Vertical presents a whole load of challenges, but I also think there's some new opportunity, I would say, as well. So, for example, uh, vertical works quite well for a single person, head and shoulders, to get a group into a shot is really difficult because Mm. as you get wider this way, you're adding so much headroom, so much footroom, they just end up being super tiny within the frame. So I approach how I'm gonna shoot things differently in that regard is I'm probably not going to be shooting a row of people flat, like head on, so that they are shoulder to shoulder straight across the frame. If I did need to have a group of people or something wide, as an example, I would probably step off to the side, right? So now Mm -hmm. you're compressing them into the frame this way, but you're also adding depth. It's just going to look different. One of the things that I actually love, which makes vertical filmmaking unique in my mind, is shooting with a wide-angle lens vertically. It is just a look you do not get in in any other medium because it's not just a wide angle. It's at arm's length. You could see (laughs) head-to-toe. There are no, even on a GoPro, if you hold it horizontally, you're not going to see head to toe and not that you should be showing yourself head to toe at arm's length. It's probably not very flattering, but I've had some shots that I find really interesting in a vertical orientation. For example, I'll do a shot maybe pushing in through a doorway. So a doorway Mm -hmm. fits wonderfully in a vertical composition, probably better so than it would in a horizontal composition because... Horizontal, you have to worry about oh, what's on either side of these doors. Maybe there's a messy room, or maybe there's a wall that's just blank. Whereas in vertical, now you get kind of the doorway that's roughly the shape of your frame, and you can kind of feel it stretch to the outsides as you push in on it. Uh, one of the other difficulties is it's to do with that not being width. So I was in uh, I was in Gimli, Manitoba this winter with Chris, how uh, shooting. This like Mercedes drifting event and it was amazing. But what was happening is sky was white, ground was white, and you had a car. And mm. coming up with new compositions is virtually impossible. The car fits left to right in the frame, everything else is white. How do you how do you change up how that looks? And so one thing while we were shooting, I don't even know if I use this in the stories, but that became really helpful is you take a drone, you send it up into the sky, and now as you start looking down the composition goes from just like up and down to like spread across. The Mavic Pro is a great example. The Mavic Pro allows you to rotate the camera vertically. What? I didn't actually know that. It does. It's the it's the reason I haven't bought a drone yet cuz I'm waiting to see if the Mavic Pro 2 will keep that feature or if I'll just buy a Mavic Pro 1 once right. these new ones come out. So I've, you know, I've done some shots with vertical composition You know, you tilt that frame down a little bit and you get to see the whole scenery stretch out in front of you. And it feels Mm. completely different than if you just cropped another drone shot. You can almost feel the distortion of what's beneath you is flat and what's ahead of you is, you know, straight. It feels like there's sort of a divide.
0: For sure. That's what I've been suffering through because I have a Phantom and a Spark and yeah, I just crop the center out and you know, that's what I get. There's also uh, an automatic panorama stitch in it. Yeah, yeah. But it uh can't shoot video like that. <laughs> exactly. And uh, yeah, right. and it, it kind of reduces the quality too. But um, Yeah, but
1: if you're around a Mavic Pro at some point, give it a shot. You uh yeah, good pull up know. the menu and hit portrait orientation. The only thing is it'll make it really narrow like on your phone or whatever with the with the screen. So I'll actually hold the phone sideways cuz it'll flip. Uh, yeah, yeah. But then then you're flying like this and it's a it can be a little bit disorienting to try and pay attention to your framing. Yeah, yeah. Because the, you'd almost have to DIY some sort of rig that'll hold the phone vertically seems worth it if you're doing a lot but yeah one of the benefits too that I found with overall with experimenting with vertical filmmaking is that regardless of how you feel about vertical filmmaking there is a market for it you know brands are looking to put ads up on Instagram stories they they want you to swipe across a by and you go into an airport and there's those giant vertical TVs that in between telling you what gate you're at are selling you perfume Vertical video is here to stay as long as phones fit. And so even if you don't like it, from a business perspective, it's worth learning how to compose shots, learning how to edit stories in that frame so that you can stand out above maybe other agencies or whatever. You can actually know how to shoot a video vertically and not just take a standard commercial and be like, yeah, I'll just crop it and adjust the crop.
0: Well, it's something I still see, you know, traditional filmmakers arguing about. And if you're one of those people that's still, like, concerned about, is vi- is vertical video real? Is it legitimate? Is it going to – you have already, <laughs> like, kind of missed the boat. Like, it, it yes. has happened. It's not a discussion. And it's getting bigger. And it's all about the application. I think a lot of people were turned off by it because we had these black bars for a long time. Hmm. Phones didn't even support it that well. But we're in a different age now. It's It's absolutely – Yeah, different. we are in a
1: different age. I don't think – I don't think vertical video for filmmaking is better than horizontal video. I just don't. Mm -hmm. It it has too many challenges, and the world around us is spread out horizontally. You know, We're on the ground, and everything is left and right. It's just where the whole... We don't really go into the sky that much. (laughs) We don't go underground that much. So that's the way we understand the world. Um, So for longer-form content, movies, etc., I am not going to watch a vertical movie. I'm not Mm going to sit... What did it, IGTV say? It was like a two-hour or 10-hour. I don't remember. Oh my God. Yeah,
0: I think uh, National
1: Geographic did some of those. Yeah, it's just the thing about vertical video is it's somewhat disposable. It seems like you, you watch content there because you have your phone. Maybe you're in line at the bank or something and, or in a long elevator. Maybe your elevator got stuck. I don't know. It, it seems like you're kind of going to be moving around or just you're in a hurry. I don't know what it is. Whereas if you want to actually sit and take in a piece of content, a tutorial, a movie, horizontal does make more sense. Um, One of the things that I think is funny about me making Instagram stories is I'm putting content in front of people who weren't asking for it, At at least in the beginning, because people are pulling out their phone in line at the bank, in the elevator, et cetera, et cetera. And you go to stories somewhat compulsively. You're just, let's see what people are doing. You're not really looking necessarily, for the most part, people probably aren't going, I'm going to see Jesse's stories right now. They're just looking at stories. And then here's mine. YouTube is the opposite. You rarely are just consuming and being like, oh, now some Jesse's on the screen. I'll just watch this. Oh, now Tyler's on the screen. I'll just watch this. But stories are exactly that. Mm -hmm. So you can take that minute or whatever where you have someone's attention and pitch yourself. You can be like, here's what I can do.
0: You have a few seconds to get their attention and hopefully they don't skip
1: all of them. Yes. <laughs> yes, Yeah. It always hurts me when I find out people don't have audio turned on. They're like, yeah, I don't really ever watch the audio. <laughs> oh I'm God. like, what? Like I do full audio mixes. I remix my voice into songs.
0: <laughs> I think about that too. Cause I speak in all of my, I depend on speaking in my, like sometimes yeah. I'm just standing there and talking and nothing else is happening. But then I think about it and I'm like, I do that too. Like I'll, I I, yeah, I, I yeah, don't yeah. turn on the – because most people don't do what, what you are – they don't treat it like we do. They'll do a lot more text and like the audio is often annoying. Yes. They'll be at a bar. Yeah. <laughs> people just are like, just ah! like laughing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so because of that, I often watch on mute. But then, you know, if, if somebody like you comes up, then I f- flick the switch. Yeah. Do you ever worry about – I mean, I hate to put this in your head if it isn't already, but that like all of the – beautiful images, you're capturing all of you, like this documentation of your life is all vertical for like the long run for you. So
1: you'll own. Yes. Yeah. You're right. I've thought about this because I've, I've filmed a lot of family memories. I've captured a lot of things that a, regardless of whether or not I'll be happy, they're vertical or horizontal. The truth is I probably wouldn't have captured them at all if I wasn't focused on making these. So having them vertically is better than nothing. And I don't see us not having vertical-oriented devices anywhere in the near future. I think we're going to have them for so long because they just fit in your hand nicely. Mm-hmm. So whatever. That's true. You'll be able to watch them later. Did you try yeah. uh, YouTube Stories yet? No, I uh, actually had a chat with uh, one of the developers from YouTube Stories. Just not about like doing anything for them. We were just talking about vertical content, and you know, they were kind of brainstorming how they wanted to implement stories and that it was a slow beta oop, and that it was a slow beta and whatnot. But I haven't tried it. I haven't even looked to see if my app or account or whatever That's has not. it, honestly.
0: I I mean, I guess there's not too much to say now because it's just starting. I got them recently and uh it was kind of buggy, which
1: right. w- made turns it you off
0: a struggle. Yeah. So like when I would try Rivera. Right, <laughs> Barely. But <laughs> I would so like I try to upload from my library and it shuffles the order of videos oh, in my library, right. so I have and to, to like, it. yeah,
1: so that made it really hard,
0: but you know, I, you'd at have same to time,
1: number the pages in the corner.
0: Yeah, actually that's it's, exactly yeah. what I should do. You know, I think though that like YouTube, it's just really interesting the, the challenges and potential of each of them. Like with YouTube, there's all the discoverability of search, right? People mm-hmm. find other people yes. because they're looking for topics. They are looking for specific types of content and mm. Instagram is very much personality driven. Like I think probably most people that follow you is through some sort of recommendation either that they saw you featured somewhere or somebody told them, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: Like, do you have any thought, like do you have like a strategy of getting your name out there or thoughts of where it's going to go?
1: Yes. And no, I think a lot of people, I don't get many salty DMS, but some people are like, Hey, you you just got to stick to this. This is your thing. Don't, you know, Don't do anything else. Just you make stories. First of all, it's like, get (laughs) out of here. I'm not going to listen to you. Um, But I'm not putting all my eggs into the vertical video Instagram story basket. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why I do want to branch out in YouTube and not just abandon stories. I want to do both and use them as different mediums and kind of have them build each other. So if you want to talk about engagement, which is a, you know, kind of an important uh, metric, if you're trying to build a business with social media, engagement is very important. And youtubers have engagement through the freaking wazoo on instagram because people have spent so much time sitting with them eye to eye they they feel a connection from i've watched hours of your face on youtube and so they're more engaged on their instagram Uh, whereas a lot of instagram pages that have just been instagram even if they're amazing photography pages they'll have less engagement than an amazing photography page that has a YouTube channel with the face behind it. I think personality Mm -hmm. is important, partially because there's so much great content out there. There's no shortage of good photographers, of good filmmakers. So you have to find something else that makes you stand out. It doesn't have to be some zany, crazy, wacky character. You don't have to be uh, Logan Paul. (laughs) You know, it maybe you could be, whatever. (laughs) But... You know, you don't have to be that. You just have to figure out what's unique about you and find the audience that'll relate to that. I'm a big advocate for creating YouTube for grownups.
0: <laughs> just meaning like people, <laughs> yeah, yeah, li- people like me, you know, or, yes. um, and I feel like, yeah, Casey and doesn't need to act like a child all the time. He'll have fun occasionally, but he'll also speak about real issues and have yeah. good interviews. And, and I think there just can be, there can be so much more that is meant for people mm. 30 Plus, or even like a mature 25-year-old that just doesn't want to watch Logan Paul, you know? Like, I think that's a growing part of YouTube, but that it's not the brand of YouTube right now. YouTube wants yeah. to brand itself as Disney Channel 2.0 or something. Yeah,
1: that that's actually a great point. I think part of the transition we're seeing right now is that you had, you know, mainstream media. You, your parents are watching TV. They weren't watching YouTube and so it's like the kids are like, no parents, no rules. This is our platform. But as digital media becomes the norm, as my parents are now watching Netflix and occasionally YouTube, my parents don't never open YouTube, but, you know, as people are aging and we're just getting more used to this whole digital content, new media world, there is, you're right, more and more of a market for YouTube for Grown ups, <laughs> yeah. And well, I mean, it I'm announcing my whiskey review channel—that's
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly what I was asking for. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it doesn't have to be like boring. But you know, an uh, example that comes to mind is like uh, Philip Bloom's presentation mm-hmm. method. You know, he's always kind of been a bit of a reference for me in how a video can be calm and engaging. Yeah, uh, it doesn't have to be jumping up and down and screaming to be something you want to like stick with. So I don't know. Right. I've had people like write Smashing me about plates. like. Totally. Or just people like writing, like, why don't you use some more, uh, like, I don't know how they describe it, but like, they basically want me to use EDM music and, you know, something, <laughs> they're like, why don't you use something more modern? And I'm like, because yeah. I don't like that.
1: Tyler, have you thought about getting a face tattoo? <laughs> this might help you. In- <laughs> Would it? Okay, then I'm going to do it. Yeah. But
0: anyway, I know you're short on time. You had relatively little sleep, so I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. Yes, but I, I had uh, four
1: hours almost. That's almost... A half night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I almost slept half as much as I should. Yeah, what are you what are you working on? I'm I'm basically at the finish line of not doing weddings ever again. I've got two more that I'll shoot this year because I booked them like 18 months ago before before I knew that I could actually make a transition to full-time social content, you know, mm-hmm. and still support my family. So, yeah, I obviously still have to do those, but
0: No, that's awesome. Congrats on the on the transition. It's
1: Thank you. Yeah, once these are something to do. Once these are done, it's probably YouTube. What's funny is a lot of the things we've talked about on here, I've got written down as this is an idea for a bit of a YouTube video. Something I want to talk about. One of them is transitions, when to use them, why to use them and why to just stop using them because they're probably ruining your videos.
0: No, I mean, if you don't, if you don't do YouTube in the next six months, you're, you're throwing your life away. You got, you got big potential (laughs) there. I really hope you jump in there soon and keep also doing your stories. So you're going to need to spend a lot of time editing. (laughs) Definitely. I will. Cool.
1: Thanks, Jesse. Yeah, sweet. Thanks for having me, Tyler. See you uh, next time.
0: Yeah, Jesse Driftwood on Instagram. That was awesome. Jesse is seriously crazy in the effort that he puts into making his uh, stories. I mean, if you haven't seen them, now's the time. But yeah, no, I loved hearing from him and I love seeing what he does. It's inspiring and exhausting because I just I I can't imagine Doing that much work, but there is something really true about how freeing it can be to do work that has no pressure. It makes it a lot less like work. So, you know, when you're doing a story, a lot of the time it's the same as doing a YouTube video structurally. I mean, you're doing the same thing, or it's the same as doing client work in the tasks that you're assigning yourself and the the actual step-by-step what you're doing, but it feels so different because there's so much less pressure. And in the end, I mean, it can turn into something that people enjoy just as much or that gets a pretty big reach. Like I've been surprised how many people tune in pretty much every time I post Instagram stories. It's Becoming a bigger and bigger part of instagram there 's an interview recently with kevin systrom who 's the CEO of instagram and he 's just talking about how much uh, the stories are absolutely taking over the engagement on Instagram. So next, let's jump to the AMA, which if you're not familiar with AMAs, it stands for Ask Me Anything, and I just realized that this is an amazing way to get ideas for for content. I can just um, put all the creativity on your guys' shoulders, and then you send me a bunch of ideas of what to talk about. So that's what I'm going to do now. Um, I am really bad at uh, reading things aloud, so you'll notice that as I read these questions, and especially people's names, I will do... A very poor job, and I apologize in advance for that, but uh we're gonna we're gonna try to muddle through this. Theres some really uh so many interesting questions. I'll try to get back to the ones that I don't answer here on social media, but let's start with on Twitter um Max asked, "Have you ever had any plans of doing narrative filmmaking movies shorts? If yes, what made you th- uh not do it at the end uh okay, well, so I have made one short narrative film, and if you go to my Vimeo page, you can see it there. I'm not super. I'm not terribly proud of it anymore. I mean, it's not great. The way I thought of it at the time is that it, I'm not going to film school, so I have to put myself through film school. I got to teach myself how to do the basics and how to set up a scene and how to tell a story. Um, it's not the worst thing. It's just you know, it's like a student film. Um, and and now it's also quite a few years old. I think I did that in like 2010. So, you know, it's, it's aging. Um, I would love to do more, but it's a lot of work and the audience, it, it's much harder to bring in an audience for like a purely creative project like that compared to YouTube. Um, whereas on YouTube, You're talking about something that people already want to know about. And if you're just telling a story that people don't know anything about and they're not familiar with, it can be really hard to get those eyeballs to show up. So at the moment, it's not something I'm planning, but I would like to get back into it in the future for sure. This one's from Declan. How do you structure your review videos and what goes into the pre-production stage? How do you plan your points, shots, etc.? I like this question because I spend a lot of time doing it and I, I know it only really affects other people, you know, trying to do, say, YouTube videos or YouTube reviews. I I don't know. I've overplanned and underplanned, and I still don't have a great system. The most important thing for me though is having a set of notes that are just bullet points of what I want to go over. If I don't have that, I really can't. Seem to make a video. Um, like I can just speak off the top of my head, but I think it comes across poorly if I if I don't have just the basics of like what am I aiming to hit, what are my targets that I want to get to along the way, and then I'll, I'll also end up needing to make more additional footage towards the end if I didn't have those notes to start with, so that I, I realize how much I was missing and I need to make up the shots by doing inserts, and it becomes a bit of a mess. So if I can be well organized with one set of bullet point notes just I want to talk about this and I want to talk about this and I can't do them long form because I'm not able to read them as I'm recording a video so they're like I say just bullet points that I can glance at it and know what I was talking about then I will usually take those make a rough edit of the video and then make another set of notes of additional shots that I need and I'll go shoot those and that's kind of how I wrap it up obviously there's a lot more to it but um I think more people here take photos than make YouTube videos, so I'll move along. Oh, wait, here's another one about YouTube videos. This one's from Jay on Twitter. How do you get over the weirdness of talking to your phone while vlogging? I I think you just don't. You don't really get over it. You just go act weird, and then you just keep doing it over and over. It's it's always a weird thing to do. Vloggers will always be in the minority. Um, It'll always attract attention. People will look at you. They will wonder what you're doing just because it's more than what else is happening around them. It's something to look at. It's something mildly entertaining. And it's kind of like dealing with anything that you're afraid to do that the hard, true answer is you just have to go do it a bunch, like just keep doing it. I find doing it with a phone is a a great way to start because as you get a bigger and bigger camera, then you you have to be braver and braver. So um, I I think Instagram stories is actually a great way to practice just talking to your phone and not worrying about everyone else around you or, you know, just do it in priv- private. If you don't feel like it, like if you don't want to go in public. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You don't have to, you don't have to be a vlogger. Next question. Uh, now in some Instagram questions, do you think you can become a photographer without a social media following these days? Ooh, that is a very relevant question that comes from Zeg Strew photos. Yes, 100 um, percent. It, it, it's actually the reason it's interesting to me is because I've always observed this thing that, like most commercial photographers, most working photographers that I know, don't have a really strong Instagram presence. And I don't know, some of them are probably listening, and like I'm not, not saying anything bad about your accounts, guys. You have very nice photos up there. but they're not usually Instagram superstars. The people that work the most in photography that I know are not big on social media. They do it. You have to do it to be seen because that's how people are going to check your portfolio now. And wait, I'm even going to backstep that. You actually don't have to do it. I definitely know working photographers that get jobs and keep getting jobs entirely off of word of mouth. And that's fine. You can do that. You don't need to have social media. Does it help? For sure. Um, I don't think big numbers help, though. Like, it absolutely is not important for you to have... Any number of followers, because when you're getting hired, no client is looking at that unless it is a social media job and they want some proof that you understand social media. But typically they're looking at it as a portfolio. Uh, I personally don't really treat my Instagram primarily as a portfolio. It's kind of for fun. And then I have a website as a portfolio that works for me. Um, As long as there's somewhere that people can check out your work and know what you're going to be able to do for them when they give you money <laughs> to do a job. That's that's by far the most important thing. And also, uh, in my case, a lot of my portfolio is my wife's blog because there's all these tie-ins of when we're getting hired through that. So like all the photography there basically is kind of a, a showcase of my work, and that ends up leading into jobs. So there there isn't one way to do it. You just need to make sure you're visible and people can find you when they come looking. And uh, and they can see what you're all about. I got a couple questions. I'm surprised how many. Um, but this one is from Ellie. You never really seem too interested in the Fuji X system. Why is that? I really like what Fuji does. Like a lot. Their, their camera design is beautiful. The image quality is great. I had a Fuji... Oh, I forget the order of those letters. XE1, E-X... XE1 that has got to be it uh which was kind of the first smaller detachable lens camera they came out with and the photos were beautiful but operationally it was too slow at the time it just it, it couldn't really handle anything um and it, like if i was a casual shooter like just shooting my family it probably would have been great but i could just never bring it on a job so i never i never used it it just sat there um, so I sold that and I, I kept looking at Fujis. Like I look at the news when they came out, cause again, they're beautiful cameras. Like they're really well-designed. I love the lens system, but I'm not using them. So I don't have a lot to say about lenses that I, or cameras that I don't use. However, this year we, uh, did buy a new Fuji. We got a X100F and it's great. Uh, so the lens is fixed on there. It's like a 35 millimeter, um, I don't get to shoot with it that often, kind of for the same reasons. Not that it, not that it doesn't perform well. Like the images have been really great that I have shot on it, um, but it, it's just usually I need a, a bigger camera. Like I, I, there's it's rare that I can be limited like that when I am carrying around any camera at all. So uh, I like it. Um, I would like to do a review about it, but I just kind of haven't got around to it. Um, I should talk about it more. I should shoot with it more. Again, it's, it's just kind of sitting there. That that one is uh, my wife's basically. So, you know, she's using it more than I am. I should ask her what she thinks of it. All right. Next one comes from Simbarash, who is an amazing photographer. I really appreciate. What was your biggest hurdle when you started podcasting? By far the biggest hurdle is... Getting people to listen, Uh, podcasts are long, and you only have time to subscribe to so many. So, I mean, great opportunity for me to thank you guys for spending your time with mine. I know all of our time is precious, so hopefully, there is some useful information here. Um, But yeah, no, there isn't a really um, there isn't a technological way that podcasts spread. It is it is all by word of mouth. Like that's the only way people find what they're going to listen to is other people telling them what they listen to. Like that's how numbers build. So it's, it's definitely the most challenging thing. So, I mean, for example, on, on this show um, most, most of my growth spurt happened right when I launched it um, like the first few months. Cause I think anybody that listens to podcasts in general and was already following me kind of like kept jumping on it for a while. And now growth is relatively slow because, I think, you know, most people that know me have found me. So it's entirely about finding new people now. So, I mean, if you guys know anybody that would be into this show that you think could benefit from it, it would be really helpful if you tell them about it, let them know, uh, help them figure out how to subscribe, because that is literally the only way it will ever grow. Um, But, yeah, I mean, really, that is by far the hardest thing. Uh, And then the second hardest is uh, coming up with a name. (laughs) That's why I settled on uh, bad names for both of my podcasts. I got a few questions about um, backup. Uh, So I'll I'll just read this one from Thomas. What's your backup routine of photos? Do you upload to a cloud service? And if so, which? Um, I shouldn't have picked this question because it's so big. There's so much to say about this. I do have a pretty long episode of cameras or whatever, like it's older, it's a couple of years old now, but most of it is still up to date about my backup workflow. But I'm working on changing it now. So this year, I really have to to update it. I'm going to make it, I'm going to tell you guys what I'm doing right now really quickly to give you a reference point of what I need to improve on and what I'm going to try to do better that... Hopefully, without just spending too much money. Like that's part of the challenge of backup is that it just costs money. Um, if you don't have a lot of volume, it becomes easier. Like if your files aren't huge, much easier to take care of them. If you're a writer saving text files, backup is a piece of cake. But with uh, you know tens of thousands of raw files uh, that you're regularly creating, it's it's hard to keep up. Um, there isn't an online service that's able to keep up with uploading those raw images. So I've tried all of them in the past, like Backplays, CrashPlan, Mosey um, was another one. So I've used them, but I'm never able to get photos up fast enough for it to really make a difference. So I've I've given up on that style uh, at the moment. And instead, I use Dropbox to keep all of my finished images. So all of the completed deliverable JPEGs. So these are like You know, high-resolution JPEGs. Um, Not a perfect long-time archival backup, but it's manageable in size. That's the main thing. Storing all the raw files is a much bigger problem. I've always found that has to be local because um, I've never been quick enough at deleting all the rejects that I need to. Like, there's always a few hundred files left from each shoot after we've deleted everything. And I could go in and I could whittle that down to just like the 50 that we should keep. But I just never have time because we're moving on to the next shot. So um, basically I've been buying all of these. Here, I got one right here. What are they? Seagate. Um, Now I've been buying the five terabyte backup plus. They're the portable USB 3 drives, uh, like spinning disk, large, five terabyte drives uh the speed of them becomes an issue with lightroom downloading to them is pretty slow so that that's one of the issues that i kind of need to solve working on the files is fine like they open and save just fine exporting is fine it's just the import is so slow which lightroom is already so bad at it and i I don't like that my drives can contribute to making it worse Um, i was doing some tests the other day and found that importing to my external ssd was about 30 percent faster which is a lot but yeah i'll have two of those portable drives that i keep in sync all the time using chronosync and that's like the main backup there's there's basically two copies all the time and I, and then uh, dropbox is the third final copy so i feel like that isn't actually enough i'd much rather have three copies i just don't have the space and i can't keep buying that many drives Uh, I don't know. I I won't update you guys until I decide what I'm going to do. I'll I'll make some decisions about my uh, future backup and let you know once I have something perfect lined up. What's your home coffee setup like? Do you take anything on the road with you? And this is from behind the sunny. (laughs) Well, coffee, I can talk about a lot, um, but I'll I'll, I'll try not to because that's not what the show is. But um, oh, I have some right here, actually. So I'm going to wait one sec. I'm like I'm virtually always drinking coffee when we are recording these. I used to get a lot more snobby about my coffee. Like I spent some time experimenting with every version of home brewing and buying really beautiful, delicious, expensive beans. Uh film Sebastian and Rosso are really great roasters in Calgary. Like Calgary was blessed with having an amazing third-wave coffee community, so Early on as well, like we we were relatively a very early city to get a bunch of great roasters, especially Phil and Sebastian. Uh, Yeah, I was, you know, I was buying their beans for home, which are quite expensive. And then I was doing AeroPress uh, to make them. I also had an espresso machine, but I found... It's so easy to screw up an espresso, unless you're a barista and you're doing it all day long and you have an expensive espresso machine that is being well-maintained, cleaned all the time. You're always checking the thermostats, making sure the water temperature is right. Like, you got to keep your eye on an espresso machine. And I don't have that kind of expertise. So if you want to do it as a layman that's not a professional, it's much easier to do either AeroPress or now what I've moved on to is pour over. I mainly switched because I find it a little bit quicker to do and quicker to clean up especially and a little more uh, reproducible. So if you're not familiar with AeroPress, it's basically like it's making an espresso by hand. There's just a a pump that puts a lot of pressure on the uh, uh, water that's going through the coffee beans and makes for a really strong little bit of drink. Then you can add some uh, water in afterwards and basically make an Americano or however you like your coffee. But uh, with pour over, I find that as long as you control the speed of the pour, um, so that the main thing is that the beans are all evenly being uh, extracted, so that water sits on all of them for an equal amount of time. So the easiest way to do that is do like a quick pour that gets them all wet and lets them soak into the... I should do a video on this. This is hard to explain. Do a quick pour so that they're all wet. Let it kind of settle for a second. And then do another pour, all like around the edges, making sure that everything is getting fully soaked and saturated. And then do that slowly until you fill the cup. Basically, like just keep a, a steady pour of water on there. Um, and I've, I've gone to switching to cheaper beans as well. I know. If anybody wants me to to take me seriously as like a coffee snob, the fact that I tell you I've been, I've been buying Tim Horton's coffee beans now will make you think I have no idea what I'm talking about. But there's a reason for it. The more I was always buying fancy coffee beans, the less often it ever felt like a treat. If you're having three treats a day, it stops feeling so special. So now I love to go to... Phil and Sebastian and Rosso and my favorite coffee roasters and have their baristas make me something amazing. And at home, I'm okay with it being good enough. Like it, it, you know, it's very good. If you find a decent bean, like there's a lot of bad ones. Don't buy Starbucks beans. They're terrible. Um, Just like a medium roast that doesn't taste bad. Brew it medium strong. And I prefer to brew a little too strong and then add some water. It just lets me kind of hit the perfect flavor Mark correctly for me, but I feel like I'm talking about coffee too long, so I'll make a video about this someday uh send in more <laughs> coffee related questions favorite book that you recommend I can do this one quickly. This is from other Adrian uh just recently uh, I have lots of favorite books I can recommend just recently, I really enjoyed vacation land from John Hodgman. It is um well, if you don't know John Hodgman, it's pretty dry comedy like. You could read it and not realize it's supposed to be comedy, but I really, really love it. I, I, I love his his style of writing. So yeah, Vacation Land, uh, I listen to the audiobooks because he reads them and he's fantastic, and I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Do you ever regret a purchase that you can't return? This is from Adiwira. Do you ever regret a purchase that you can't return? I think it's really important to return purchases that you regret as, as quickly as you can. Uh, this is something I really learned from my wife, Anya. Uh, she's you know smarter than me in so many ways that you just don't have to feel bad for returning stuff. These stores have a tremendous amount of resources, a lot more than you do. And the cost of that return is much, much smaller to them than it is to you. They are still able to resell it. They can restock it. People are working there in the day to do these things. You know, assuming that it's it's something you don't want. Like, if you're not going to use this, take it back as quick as you can. Get your money back. Don't feel bad. This is a big company. They can handle Like, they're, they're grown ups. They can handle it. They have a return policy for a reason. If they didn't want to take returns, they could change their policy, but they don't. So, you know, it's not something to be abused. Like, don't return everything all the time. But please don't hold on to things that you don't want uh, because you feel bad for returning them. And do I ever regret them? Yes, <laughs> I've definitely just bought things that turned out to be the, the wrong things. I don't have any examples at the top of my head, but all right, last one. This comes from Leanne. Favorite camera bag, brand, favorite camera bag brands for a beginner. Anything to think about before buying? Um, brand wise, I mean, you can kind of look at any of the big ones because they all make some nice bags. Like uh, Lowepro and Manfrotto have some really great budget bags that are relatively inexpensive, um, it's not so much the brand, it's it's knowing what to look for. So things that are important to me, um, I like to keep my bags as like tight as possible, meaning that they don't have a lot of extra straps or flaps or things that aren't usually functional. Like I find there's so many backpacks that look like a hiking bag. Um, so there's just all this stuff hanging off of it that I'm not using and gets in the way and frustrates me and makes me not want to wear it. I like my backpack to feel like, yeah, like a school bag, like a cool backpack, you know, uh, if I could have, uh, like a Tom Ford backpack, I would much rather use that, but it's not really practical for loading stuff. in. like, I want it to look pretty good. Um, so like right now I'm using a low pro a lot of the time, which uh, is only expensive because of the size. It's like one of their bigger professional bags. It's the, wait, what is it? It's the pro tactic 450. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can just look at the ones at, at different, at whatever price range you're at and make sure that it's a backpack. That side bags are only good for short term. Like if you're not going to be out too long, they are not good for your shoulders. I used to wear them and uh, like it, it, it's only going to cause problems um, unless you have a really light camera. Like if you have a little micro four thirds, maybe. And then if you do have quite a bit of weight, make sure that there is a cross strap. Like, that's the one strap that matters that goes across your chest. That takes so much weight off and can really be a lifesaver. Um, if you are, like, seriously hiking, then you're probably also going to want a waist strap. But I, um, I usually get annoyed when those are always there, and I only need them, you know, 10% of the time. So that's the end of this AMA. That's the end of this podcast. Again, guys, I like, I hope this is useful to you and I'm um, super glad that you stuck with it all the way through. And like I said, if you know anybody that would find this podcast helpful, I would really, really appreciate it if you told them about it because that's the only way people are going to find it. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.